Thank you so very much, Julie, Mark, Raymond, Ashley, and Michael. You all just have led us so very, very well to the Lord. And Mark, if you didn't lead in prayer just before we turn to the Word of God, I was going to lead in prayer. You took the words right out of my mouth. And uh, I enjoy hearing you all pray as much as I do you leading us in song. So thank you very much. I wonder how you would answer this question this morning. What is true love? Uh, This is a question our culture really struggles with, doesn't it? One of the best answers to this question that I've ever seen came from R.A. Torrey, who was the second president of the Moody Bible Institute, uh, a personal and close friend of D.L. Moody himself. And this is what R.A. Torrey wrote about true love. He said, real love is entirely unselfish. It loses sight utterly of self-interest and sets itself to seeking the interest of the person loved. This was God's attitude towards the world. He loved the world, really loved it. Now, every generation in every culture has to give an answer to this question, or that generation will be in serious trouble. Our marriages depend upon true love. Our families depend upon real love. Our church is dependent upon people who know how to love, and our very country, so fragmented, so divided today, depends upon its citizens understanding real love. Now, in the Old Testament, God had a very special word for love. That word, as we saw last week, is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is a word that reflects the love of God that he himself demonstrates towards his people. In the Old Testament, God came into a covenant relationship with Israel called the Abrahamic Covenant. Today, in the church, God is in a relationship with us called the New Covenant based upon the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God initiated that covenant based on his mercy and his love and his grace And Hesed says that God will always be faithful to his love. And so there are many ways that this word can be translated. It can be translated covenant faithfulness. It can be translated loyal love. It can be translated steadfast loving kindness. And the whole book of Ruth is based upon this kind of love. As we saw last Sunday, there are three acts of hesed in the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, we have Ruth's hesed to Naomi. In chapter 2, we have Boaz's hesed to Ruth. And then in chapter 3, we have Ruth's hesed back to Boaz and Naomi again. And behind it all is the hesed of God for those who are his children. Now this morning, we are going to see probably the clearest picture in the whole book of Ruth as to what true love, 
True Hesed is. And all of us need to ask a question as we work through this message. We will start today and, Lord willing, finish next week. But we have to ask ourselves, is this how we love our spouse, our family, our church, our neighbors, our country? This morning, this opening part of chapter 4 is really all about the tests of true love. And I want you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Ruth chapter 4. And let's begin to look at them this morning. If you don't have a Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 415. And you can follow along as together we learn from God's Word. Just before I read verses 1 and 2, let's notice the first test, shall we? True love takes responsible actions. Follow along with me. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten elders of the town, and he said to them, Sit here. And so they did. Now the first thing we notice is how active Boaz is. Do you remember back in verse 18 of chapter 3 that Naomi had said to Ruth, Boaz will not rest until he settles this matter. That very day, the very day after uh, the encounter at midnight with Ruth down at the threshing floor, he took action. And in the opening verse, we see that he went to the town gate where he was convinced that at some point he would catch his relative on his way out of Bethlehem to work in the fields. And no sooner had he sat there than verse 1 tells us that the kinsman redeemer came along. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, uh, the original Hebrew language at this point in verse 1 says... Behold, the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. What a surprise. He shows up immediately after he sits down. Are you surprised at anything more in this book anymore? I'm not either. God is at work. And he wants to bless these people showing true love because they have experienced his love. Now the second thing Boaz does is he gets ten elders from Bethlehem to make up a legal court. Uh, In the ancient Near East, uh, the main gate of every town was um, encompassed with a large courtyard surrounded by walls. 
Uh, benches were built adjacent to those walls, much like the benches that we have out here in the lobby of our church. And the courtyard was the place where the town's business and legal matters were cared for, and elders in those towns would make judgments on business and legal matters. So you'll notice what Boaz is doing here. He is actively arranging everything so he can fulfill his promise to Ruth. Uh, this past week I, I read this statement. The most attractive thing a man can do is exactly what he says he's going to do. Isn't that good? The most attractive thing a man will ever do is to do exactly what he says he's going to do. By that standard, Boaz is a very attractive man, is he not? He's a very attractive man. He did exactly what he said. Now I learned from this something so very important. True love, Hesed, does not passively wait around for feelings to kick in. Passivity is not love. That is so critical for us to understand. The more we are gripped by the love of God, the more we will be active for His causes. That is absolutely clear here. People that love the Lord, they take action for the Lord. People that love their church, they are active in their church. People that love their families, they take action on behalf of their families. There is nothing passive about real love. I want you to ask a, a question with me here this morning. Why does Boaz need to go to court, uh, complete with judges and legal proceedings before he can marry Ruth? You remember in chapter 3, Ruth had asked him to perform the role of the kinsman redeemer based upon Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. And those two chapters said the nearest relative was to redeem property that a widow might have to sell so that she would just have enough money to live on. And then he was to marry that widow and raise up a son to secure the future of that family. But Boaz had made it very, very clear that he was not the nearest relative. Uh, go back again to chapter 3 and notice verses 12 and 13. Notice what he says. Although it is true that I am a near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it, lie here until now. Now we begin to understand why he goes to the legal center of the town, 
gets the judges for a legal proceeding because he is not the nearest relative. Therefore, if he goes ahead and marries Ruth, he will be disobeying God's word and he will be cheating his relative. Now, it is very, very clear here in this passage He wants to marry Ruth. Oh, does he want to marry her? He's impressed with her. He loves her. But he will not do wrong to get her. He will not do wrong to God's word. He will not do wrong to his relative. He sets up all of these legal proceedings to show everyone he is not going to cheat. Oh, I learned something here so valuable. Real love is active, but it is responsible actions. Real love is always acting in line with one's duty. Do you know what Boaz is saying here? I love this woman. I want to marry her. But I will lose the girl if it means I have to violate integrity, God's word, or someone else. May I say to you, that is real love. That is real love. Perhaps you are aware that one of the greatest pastors in American history was Jonathan Edwards. He had 23 years of very fruitful ministry in his first church. In fact, he was a part of the first great awakening in this country and uh, was mightily used of God throughout all of New England and uh, in his own congregation. But after 23 years he came to believe that a practice in his church that he had participated in that involved uh, membership and the Lord's Supper was unscriptural. And after 23 years, he said to his church, I can no longer go along with this practice. He tried to persuade them from the Word of God that they had been wrong, but he was going against years of cultural and religious practice. They would not acknowledge what he was saying from God's Word, and so he was forced out of his church. He had a large family. He went six months without any regular salary or income. When he finally did find another ministry, it was on the frontier in difficult and even dangerous, dangerous conditions. You know what history has proved? History has proved Edwards was right. And today, American churches are healthier because of what Edwards saw in the Word of God. His church had no idea what it was doing when it forced him out. He had loved that church for 23 years, 
but it was a love based on biblical integrity. And that's the kind of love that Boaz had. Let me say something this morning. Anyone who says they love you, but will violate right and wrong for you, does not love you no matter what they say. And anyone who says they love you, but will not violate right and wrong for you, really loves you. Anyone who says they love you, but they will violate right and wrong for you, does not really love you. But anyone who says they love you and will not violate right and wrong for you, they really love you. We will probably have more young people in the second service. We have a number here today. Let me say to you as young people, if you have parents who will not violate right and wrong for you, those parents love you deeply. You may be angry with them. You may say, what about other parents? But the true parent who loves you will love you so much they will not violate right and wrong for you. True love takes responsible actions. Let's look at the second test. Test number two. True love willingly pays a price. True love willingly pays a price. Now notice verse 3. And Boaz said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech, who was her husband. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. You get the impression now that a crowd has started to gather around these proceedings. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you acquire the dead man's widow, Ruth the Moabitess in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Whoa, that's a little different story. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Anybody would say this morning, sometimes when people say I cannot, they really mean I will not. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel, sort of like giving a deed. 
So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal and gave it to him. Did you notice that this nearer relative is not even named in verse 1? Did you notice that? He comes through the gate. Boaz sees him, their relatives, and he calls him friend. Now, very certainly, Boaz knew the name of his own relative in such a small town like Bethlehem, right? But it's very interesting. The word friend in verse 1 comes from two words in the original Hebrew language that literally means such and such. It literally means a certain one. One Bible student has said we could actually uh, call this man in verse 1 Mr. So-and-so, or we could also call him Mr. No-Name. And we got to ask, why is his name omitted? Well, you know there are two authors of the Bible, don't you? There's the human author, and there's the Holy Spirit guiding the human author. And evidently, the Holy Spirit did not want this man's name mentioned because of his actions. What he did was so self-centered, so all about me, that God omits the memory of him from the pages of Scripture. You know what this is? This is how you become a no-name with God and everybody who will remember you. Anybody here say it sounds like what I want to be? Boaz, on the other hand, is how we become remembered as a person who left a legacy of love. What we find in these verses is a contrast. It's a contrast between Mr. No Name and it is a contrast between Boaz. And in this contrast, we are learning what true love is really all about. Let's look at the contrast here for a few moments together, shall we? First of all, Mr. No Name does the letter of the law, but Boaz does the spirit of the law. You see, God's law stipulated that the brother of a deceased relative was to marry the widow. That's Deuteronomy 25. Now, Mr. No Name and Boaz were not brother-in-laws of uh, the widow's husband. So technically, if they wanted to be real technical, and Mr. No Name is very, very technical, they could refuse the law of Leverett marriage in Deuteronomy 25. But Boaz very clearly saw something deeper. He saw that in the letter of the law, God wanted widows and poor widows and families to be cared for. In fact, his speech in verse 5 borrows from some of the phrases of Deuteronomy 25.7. Keep your finger here and go back to the last book of Moses, Deuteronomy 25. And you will notice 
in verse 7, if you compare it with verse 5 of Ruth 4, that Boaz is borrowing from some of the phraseology of Deuteronomy 25, even though he does not fit the category because he is not a brother-in-law. He is a more distant relative. Notice what Moses said. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Boaz saw a moral obligation. You see... The nearest relative was the one who could perform this duty and rescue a family. And Boaz saw that he technically didn't fit this requirement, but he knew the spirit of the law said, even if you're not a brother and you're a more distant relative, you can still fulfill this duty. Boy, we learned something here. True love never says what's required, that's enough. True love always says, I know what's required, but now what is the spirit of what God is asking and how can I do more than is required? Oh, how we need to ask that in this generation today. We're so used to saying, what's required? That's all I'll do. I won't go any further. That's the letter of the law. Now here's the spirit of the law. I see the heart of God for people He loves. I want to do more than is required. Secondly, in this contrast, Mr. No-Name asked this question, what's in it for me? Boaz asked, what's in it for others? If you look down at verse 6, most of our, many of our English Bibles omit a little two words. I think they omit them because they assume that we will finish the sentence. But literally, in verse 6, when the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it, he literally said, I cannot redeem it for myself. And many of our translations omit the for myself because they assume that we will add that, understanding that's what he meant. But this is just dripping with selfishness. Now look down at verse 9, and notice who Boaz was concerned about. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malone. I have also acquired the Ruth the Moabitess. Look all the people that he was concerned about. He's concerned about five people, Elimelech, 
Kilion alone who have died. And then Naomi. And then Ruth. He is concerned about five different people. Do you know, one of the worst curses in the ancient Near East that you could place upon somebody was to say, may your seed perish and your name die out. That was one of the worst things that could happen. And now Boaz, not wanting that to happen to these Jewish men, is concerned even for the dead and their future reputation. And he asks the question, what's in it for others? Notice thirdly in this contrast, Mr. No Name was concerned for profit, but Boaz was concerned for now it becomes very clear what is going on in the thinking of Mr. No Name. Mr. No Name. If he redeemed the land, he would have a great future investment. He would pay a little cost right now that would go to help uh, Naomi uh, with her living expenses. But because she was an older widow who could not have children, when she died, the land would revert to him and he would grow his future estate. But if he married Ruth, he would acquire the expenses and the support of Ruth, Naomi, and any children that were born, and the firstborn son to that marriage to Ruth would actually be named for her former husband, and therefore the firstborn son would inherit that land on behalf of Elimelech and Milon and his family, and therefore this man would not have that land ultimately in his estate. You know what happens? If he marries Ruth, he's giving simply to charity without any long-term financial benefit to himself. Can we just say it? He's in it for the money. That's what he's in it for. Boaz doesn't care how much it costs. Boaz cares about what happens to the people. It was the author Oscar Wilde who said, nowadays people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And that's exactly the point. This man knew the the price of everything, but he did not know the value of anything. Now it becomes very clear. The final contrast is Mr. No Name won't pay a price. Boaz willingly pays a price. In verse 6, Mr. No-Name says, I might endanger my own estate. I might lose in this transaction. But Boaz, back in chapter 3, verse 13, said to Ruth, 
If he won't do it, I will do it. The cost does not matter for the sake of doing the will of God. Could I just stop here right now for a moment and say, which side of the ledger are you on? Which side am I on? The only reason that Boaz could love like this was because he was a child of God. God had invaded his life with God's hesed, and that transformed Boaz, and now he became a man who wants to show hesed to others. In the same way, you and I cannot love like this unless the Lord Jesus Christ, by his mercy and salvation, has invaded our life, changed our lives, and enabled us to love with the Hesed that he loves us with. As the Bible says, we love him because he first loved us. And the only way anyone can love in this way is if Jesus Christ has come into their life, cleansed them from their sins, and changed their hearts with His marvelous love, mercy, grace, and salvation. And then we can begin to love in this way. If you begin to count up the words redeem, buy, and purchase in chapter 4, you will find they are found at least 15 times in the chapter. Verse 4 alone in the original language uses those words five times. Here's what Pastor Warren Wiersbe has said about redemption. There can be no redemption without the paying of a price. Redemption by its very nature means the paying of a price. So look what we find here. I love what Pastor Brandt has said as he summarizes what we are seeing here. Boaz here stood revealed as a great and selfless man. A splendid contrast to the petty self-seeking figure of the nearest kinsman redeemer. The near kinsman operated by the philosophy, what's the least I can do? How little is enough? By contrast, Boaz models true love, what's the most I can do to implement God's good law for the good of others? See, there can be no paying of a pro no love without the paying of a price. True love is always, always sacrificial love. I read a story from a pastor that I know of from a former generation. He had been a chaplain in the Civil War. And one day he met a man who had been in the Civil War who had no arms. This is what this man told him. He said before war came, he was engaged uh, in 
to a young lady in New England, and they were making plans for marriage. But before they could uh, reach their wedding day and be married, the Civil War came. He was called off to be a soldier, and he went through many battles in the war. Even while he was on the battlefield, he would write letters from the very battlefield to his fiancée expressing his love. Then one day the letters stopped. She thought maybe he was dead. Finally, another letter arrived. Only this time, it was in strange handwriting. And as she read the letter, it said to her, there was another battle. I lost both arms. A comrade is writing this letter for me. I'm releasing you from our engagement, or I will never be able to support you. When she got the letter, she got on a plane. She traveled to the American hospital where he was. She went to his room. When she saw him lying on the cot, she fell down before him and she said these words. I will never give you up. These hands will never give you up. I am able to support you. I will take care of you. If anyone is unwilling to sacrifice for you, they do not love you, no matter how much they say they do. True love will unselfishly sacrifice and pay the price. Or it is not true love. Let's ask the Lord this morning to burn these lessons deep into our hearts. Would you bow with me? Father, we're so grateful for how wonderfully clear your word is. And we pray, Lord, today that as we learn critical lessons, that our culture has lost a long, long time ago. That you will make us into men and women of God who understand what it means to be in a relationship with you. And then out of that relationship are faithful to others 
showing loyal love, showing steadfast commitment, taking actions that are responsible, and always willing, always willing to pay whatever cost comes. Lord, I pray today especially for young people. Prone to mistake love for good feelings and easy times. Listening to the music of a culture that does what feels right rather than what is right. That so easily walks away from commitments when they become difficult or costly. I pray for us as a church, Father. It is so easy for us to be here based upon our own convenience and yet not really be committed to the welfare of the people sitting around us that we say we love. And you call us to such a high and holy standard that we know it's only possible if Christ has changed our lives. I thank you, Lord, for this great portrait of your Hesed. Help us to be people of true Hesed. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said together,